In our passage today, John chapter 10, verses 30 to 42, Jesus continues to interact with the Jews, which is a term that John often uses to denote those who are in opposition to Jesus, particularly, most often, the religious leaders of the Jews. And I've said this before, but I think it's helpful to reiterate from time to time as we make our way through John's gospel that this is not an anti-Semitic designation as Jesus himself and his disciples were all Jews. It's used this way, rather, to bring out the truth stated back in John chapter 1, that Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. John is bringing out the rejection of the Messiah by the Jewish people. By and large, the Jewish people who were God's chosen Old Covenant people rejected Jesus... When Jesus, who was the long-anticipated Messiah, actually came to them. So here are God's chosen people, God's own, waiting for a Messiah. The Messiah comes unto his own, and what happens? His own receive him not. This is why John often uses the term the Jews to speak about those in opposition to Jesus. He's bringing out that idea. He's developing that theme that Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. We see the dynamic of rejection here again in John chapter 10, as we've seen it many times already in our study, where we read here that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. That's in verse 31. The implication of again is that this is not the first time that it's happened. This is a typical reaction of the Jewish people to their own Messiah. And what prompted the strong anti-Jesus reaction in this case was his statement in verse 30, that I and the Father are one. Now, a lot of modern commentators actually see no claim to deity here. Rather, they argue that the statement that Jesus and the Father are one is merely making the claim that Jesus and the Father are one in purpose. However, when we Christians are at our best, we could even make the same claim, if that's all it meant. When we are seeking first God's kingdom, when we're in that zone, and the Holy Spirit is helping us, and we're walking with the Lord, we're walking nearly and closely with Him, and It is our sincere desire, which is possible. We don't do it perfectly and continuously, but it actually is possible to be righteous. When we are living righteously and we are seeking first the kingdom of God, if all Jesus meant when he said, I and the Father are one, is that I and the Father are one in purpose, well, we could even say the same thing. When we wake up and we're seeking first God's kingdom and we're seeking his glory, we could say, I and the Father are one. If that is all that is meant by this statement. But no, Jesus is doing much more than that. And the Jews to whom he is speaking don't miss the implication. They respond in verse 33, You, being a man, make yourself God. In that, they're right. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was claiming to be God. He was claiming a unity with the Father, which was not merely a unity of purpose, which someone who is not God could have with God, a unity of purpose. Rather, Jesus 
is making a claim to deity. And Jesus' argumentation with them, subsequent to his statement, I and the Father are one, this argument that we see happen here bears out the point that Jesus is, in fact, making a claim to deity. Jesus doesn't clarify and back off his claim to be God. Rather, he buttresses it and insists upon it. If Jesus wasn't claiming to be God and they said, we're going to kill you because you, being a man, make yourself God. If Jesus didn't mean that, he just would have said, whoa, 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 not so fast. I'm not claiming to be God. You misunderstood me. And he would just explain what sensible person would look at an angry mob trying to kill them and not clarify his point. Jesus doesn't back off his claim. He doesn't clarify his claim. Instead, he buttresses his claim and insists upon it in such a way that in verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him. So Jesus argues the point with them. He doubles down on the point with them, leading them to continue to want to arrest him. So we're going to consider today Jesus' own two-stage argument for the validity of his claim to be divine. Let's begin with the first stage of argumentation contained in verses 34 to 36. Jesus cites Psalm 82, where it says, I said, you are God's. Jesus tells us, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because he said, I am the son of God. The thrust of the first part of his argument is this. Since you claim to believe the scriptures, and since the scriptures state that some mere men are gods in some sense, then surely it is at least possible that in some sense I may also be God. Now, Jesus is not merely arguing that he's a God in the same sense that the people addressed in Psalm 82 are gods. In Psalm 82, certain persons are called gods since they are earthly magistrates whom God has appointed, according to Romans 13, to act in God's stead in the temporal execution of justice here and now. So the magistrates act in God's place. And therefore, they are to be, in a sense, like gods to us. They stand in God's place. We are to render them obedience and honor and so on and so forth because they're acting in God's stead by God's appointment in the temporal execution of justice here and now. They are called gods because by carrying out their duty of executing justice in the way that God has ordained them to, the execution of justice is ultimately God's work, isn't it? And they share in that. They resemble God in some sense and stand in God's place toward their constituents. And therefore, they are called in Psalm 82, gods in that very limited sense. They're not divine, but this is the sense in which it's used in Psalm 82. Jesus is not merely arguing that that is the sense in which he is also a god. Nor is Jesus simply equivocating And using a citation from the scriptures, which means one thing, 
And then midway through the argument, changing the definition of the word gods to mean something else when he applies it to himself. This is a real sneaky way of arguing. But people do it all the time. And you gotta, you got to catch when someone's changed the definition midway. That's called equivocation. Jesus is not equivocating here. Understanding the sense in which God calls the people in Psalm 82 gods. Saying, look, they're gods and I'm also God. But then what he means by that is something very different. What Jesus says next... Um, well, sorry, just to finish that point, if he was just doing that, it would actually be a useless and a forceless argument. And so we who receive the scriptures much later and study the scriptures much later would just look and see Jesus making a fallacious argument, and we would just think, what's the point of that? It doesn't prove anything. It doesn't make any point, really. So he's not doing that. What Jesus says next, in the next stage of his argument, which we'll examine in a minute, what Jesus says next demonstrates that he's not equivocating. Jesus is simply, at this point, making the argument that since some people are called gods in some sense, then surely it is at least possible that in some sense he might be God. See, the Jews conceived of God as being totally and only transcendent, in the sense that he could never, God could never take on flesh and dwell among us. You see, the Jews did not have a mental category for the incarnation. In fact, they were opposed a priori to the very concept of the incarnation. If God had told them, which he did, that the virgin was going to conceive and bring forth a son. Right? And that his name shall be Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Right? If, Jesus, if God had told them ahead of time that the Messiah is going to be a God-man, which he did, they would not have believed him, which they did not. You see, they did not have a mental category for the Incarnation. They were opposed a priori to the very concept of God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. Rightly, they were opposed to Greek and Roman conceptions of the gods that are capricious, passionate beings carried along by their emotions and feelings who live up on a mountain somewhere. And sometimes they come down and impregnate women and what comes out is half man, half God. and All this kind of nonsense that comes from Greek and Roman mythology. The Jews rightly rejected that kind of conception of God. As Paul says uh, much later in the book of Acts, God is not of like passions to men. There is a difference between God and men. Unlike the Greek gods and the Roman gods who are just of like passions to men. God is a distinct being. He's not just a big man. He is transcendent. He is other. God is not like the Greek gods who all share in some kind of godness which is bigger than them. God 
is godness. And godness is God. There's no, there's no thing behind God which is superior and transcendent, some essence in which God taps into, which makes him God. Unlike these Greek gods who are very manlike, very imminent, they are basically just super strong men, like Hercules, right? Or Zeus. They like meat, they like women, they like power, they like prestige, and they happen to be able to throw lightning bolts. This is the conception that the Greeks and Romans had. And the Jews rightly said, no, 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 Yahweh is not like that. Correctly, they said that. And so they wrongly inferred it is not possible for God to take on flesh and dwell among us. They did not allow for any concept of a God-man. And so when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, that's a priori, that's out. We won't even tolerate what he's saying. We won't think about it. We won't consider whether it might be true in some sense. So what Jesus does first, all he's doing in the first stage of this argument, is just saying there may be some sense in which what I said may be true. That's it. It's a very restrained premise. Simply just consider, if the scripture said this, and scripture may not be broken, which also tells us of Jesus' opinion of the Old Testament, right? If the scripture said this, and the scripture cannot be broken, you are gods, and they were speaking to mere men, consider, it may be possible that I might actually be able to say, in some sense, I am the Father I want. I may be God, in some sense. Jesus is merely at this point, at this point, making the argument that it's at least possible that in some sense he's God. Now, the next stage of his argument, which we'll explore in a minute, is going to explore the sense in which his claim to divinity is in fact legitimate. And he's going to make an argument that what he's saying is not merely possible, but actually true. But before we actually get to that second stage of Jesus' argument, I want to make one point of application. Often when we are trying to persuade someone of something, for example, the claims of Christianity, we want to say everything all at once. And we want to bring the full force of the argument to bear one time. We want to bring the closing arguments. First thing. Notice here the patience of Jesus in disputing with his opponents. Jesus here begins by merely arguing that something is possible before he actually goes on to argue that it's plausible or verifiable. Philosophers speak of plausibility structures. Plausibility structures are those things which, in Joe Carter's words, filter out claims that we cannot 
that we believe cannot be reasonable or even potentially true. So, let me illustrate. If I told you, for example, that I rode a unicorn to church this morning, that would not fit within your plausibility structure and would therefore be rejected immediately. You would not even consider that that might be a possibility. If I, if I told you that I drove here in a Rolls Royce, you might think it's implausible that I drove here in a Rolls Royce, but who knows? Maybe I have a rich friend and I borrowed his car. Maybe, who knows? It's conceivable, at least, that that might have happened, however implausible it may be. But if I tell you I rode a unicorn, you should have seen, man, he was running like the wind. And the sun was shining down, and I was just... It was a real nice ride to church. That doesn't fit within your plausibility structure. You filter it out as something which cannot even possibly be true. So something has to first fit within your plausibility structure before you can even entertain and evaluate what's being disputed. Now, use our imaginations. If you came to my house and... Uh, many of you know I have some dog kennels in the back. Let's say I say I got something to show you, and I walk up to the kennels, and you think I'm going to show you a dog. But I open up one of the kennels. Lo and behold, it's a unicorn. <laughs> and he's stuffed in there into one of these dog kennels. Well, all of a sudden, now, if you see that, and I say, I ride him places. I, I ride him to church. I ride him to the supermarket. Now, all of a sudden... That claim at least fits within your plausibility structure. Right? It would be surprising, it would be shocking, but what has to happen first, before you might believe that I ride a unicorn anywhere, what has to happen first is that you have to believe that unicorns exist. Right? So, what Jesus is doing in the first part of his argument is simply framing his claim to divinity in such a way that those who believe in the Old Testament scriptures or profess to believe in the Old Testament scriptures could at least consider it possible that there might be some sense in which Jesus could be God. In which Jesus' claim, I and the Father are one, could be true. If they will simply grant that at least it's possible in some sense, that that might not be true, then all of a sudden the conversation can turn to in what sense might that be true? And what evidence might be marshaled in support of that claim? So all Jesus is doing at first is challenging their plausibility structure to expand and consider something that they hadn't considered before. All he's doing is challenging them not to write off his claim, I and the Father are one, a priori, which means before considering the evidence. If this is how Jesus argued at times, we ought to consider it a legitimate tactic to also argue at times in the same way. Now here's the classic example. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. And it's been famously said multiple times by multiple people, so I can't source the origin. If you can get past the first four words in the Bible, everything after it makes sense. In the beginning, God. If there's a God, 
at the beginning of all things, at the foundation of all things. Nothing, nothing in the rest of the Bible is implausible. And so, for example, if we are debating with someone or discussing with someone, and they will write off a priori that there's a God, one tactic that we might use is simply to say, okay, but let's consider now all of the things that your worldview cannot explain, which you have to admit, if you deny the existence of a God, there are a number of intellectual challenges with that. Now, just extend me the same courtesy and let's pretend that there is a God. Let's use our imaginations and consider if there is a God. And now let's consider the biblical worldview and everything that the Bible tells us about who God is and who we are and the way the world is. Wouldn't that actually make a lot of sense? So you see, an argument like that is not forcefully proving God, but it's helping people consider that they might need to expand their plausibility structure. To some people, saying that you believe in God is like saying that you believe in unicorns. And sometimes you can start with, but if there is, doesn't that make so much more sense of everything? And as the plausibility structure might expand to consider, maybe there is a God. And if there is, then what about this? If there is, then what about this? All of a sudden now you can start to have some more meaningful discussions. But that's a pretty restrained argument, isn't it? Sometimes I think that we need to argue with the patience of Jesus and simply challenge people's plausibility structures to consider what perhaps they haven't as yet considered. To consider if, if what you're saying might have more merit than they were previously willing to consider. Greg Kukul wrote a book called Tactics, uh, which is a, a basically about uh, sharing the faith and discussing uh, Christianity and the gospel with unbelievers and trying to persuade them of the Christian faith. And one of the things he says in his book, Tactics, is, again, sometimes we, have, we feel this pressure to close the uh, proceedings, to just give that definitive argument and say everything, get it all out there. We're going to sit down and talk about this for three hours. We'll debate everything. We'll answer every one of your questions. And boom, case closed. But Kukul talks about the idea of putting a pebble in someone's shoe. Giving them, giving them a little something that's going to make them think. Giving them a little something that they're going to have to go away and wrestle with a little bit. I think Jesus is doing a little something like that here in this passage. If the scriptures, which cannot be broken say that these people in Psalm 82 are gods, might it at least be possible that in some sense it might be true that I and the Father are one? They're going to have to go away and think about that. They're going to have to go away and look at Psalm 82. They're going to have to revisit their conception of God. So that's all that Jesus is doing in the first stage of his argument with these Jews. That's the, the purpose of the citation from Psalm 82, merely to challenge the plausibility structures of the Jews who would not believe a priori that a man could in any sense be God. Let's consider now how Jesus builds upon this foundation. 
having demonstrated from the Old Testament Scriptures that it's at least possible that in some sense Jesus' claim, I and the Father are one, could be true, Jesus now begins to marshal explanations and arguments for the sense in which it is, in fact, true. Let's consider the second stage of Jesus' argumentation in John 10, verses 36 to 39. And let's start with Jesus' explanation of the sense in which his claims are true. So he's going to, before he argues, yes, it is true, and here's the evidence, he's going to say, this is what I mean by this. Let me explain to you what I mean when I say I and the Father are one. This is the sense in which it's true. (laughs) Jesus says in verse 36, that he has been consecrated and sent into the world by the Father. Now, what is the implication of this? Pre-existence. You and I could never say that we have been consecrated and sent into the world by the Father. Sure, we were, we were knit together in our mother's womb by God, as Psalm 139 says, but we can't say that In the beginning, we were with God, let alone that we were God. But we can't even say in the beginning we were with God. We just didn't exist. But Jesus says that he was consecrated and sent into the world by the Father. If we go back to John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. We look at a passage like John chapter 3. In verse 13. Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. The Son of Man. Other passages like this, we could, we could multiply them in John. This theme of being from heaven, being from the Father, has been brought out by John throughout this gospel account. And here is Jesus saying that which is in harmony with the narrator. I have been consecrated and sent into the world by the Father. The implication of this is eternality. Now his identity comes very quickly then to the fore. Well, who is this one who is from heaven? Who is this one who has been consecrated and sent into the world? Who evidently was pre-existent? Who is this one? Again, John 1.1. He is one who was in the beginning with God and who was in the beginning God himself. Augustine or Augustine said about Jesus' statement, I and the Father are one. The one steers us clear of areas in which Jesus is a created being, distinct from God. And the are, I and the Father are one, steers us clear of Sibelius, who argued that 
the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not three persons, but three different modes of being. Jesus would have said, I and the Father am one, if there was no distinction between the persons. So, Augustine makes this argument that the very way that it's phrased shows distinctness from the Father. At the same time, oneness with the Father. Look at verse 38. Sorry, I lost my place there for a second. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. <clears throat> Jesus is he who was in the beginning with God, and at one and the same time, he who was in the beginning, God himself. Jesus and the Father are one. And yet the Father is in Jesus. And Jesus is in the Father. Implying some sort of distinction. This whole idea of the Father being in Him and Him being in the Father. The historic term is perichoresis. In English we would say coherence. The Father and the Son and the Spirit cohere within one another. Or interpenetration. Interpenetration is another word that is often used in English. Now, those of you who know me know I like analogies. And I'm always searching for analogies. And I'm multiplying analogies. And sometimes Mel has to tell me, okay, I got it. Give enough examples. But we can't do analogies here. Even on the way to church this morning, I was trying to think about how to bring this section across even more clearly. And I'm searching for analogies, but again, I'm reminding myself, there is no analogy for the Trinity. There is no analogy for the Trinity. We simply stop here. The Father, the Son, the Spirit are one person. Or pardon me, are one God in three persons. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. The Son and the Father are one. We say what the Bible says. We draw boundaries around what the Bible says so that we don't go ahead and say things which would be contrary to what the Bible does say. So we have things that we cannot say about God. We have things that we can say about God. But within the things that we can say about God, we have to admit there is no analogy. We can't say, oh, it's just like a three-leaf clover. Oh, it's just like an egg. There's the the shell and the yolk and the white. We We can't begin to do these things or we get into Trinitarian misunderstandings. We just can't do it. The root word in perichoresis is Korea. C-H-O-R-E-A. From which we get choreography. There's this uh, sense of, or this correlation to the word dance. And so some have talked about the Trinity as sort of a, a dance, an eternal dance between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And I think, I think that that 
helps bring it out, as I was saying, uh, was it last week or the week before? We're not merely dealing with dry, abstract doctrines. We're dealing with the one whom our soul loves. We're dealing with he who first loved us. We're trying to understand and study the portrait of God that's given us in the scripture. As a young man deployed overseas at war, studies the portrait of his beloved back home. And I think that this dance, bringing out the etymology of the word and thinking about this dance between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, brings out something of the liveliness and the beauty of the Trinity, interrelating with one another from eternity past. It's not this static, three-pronged thing or something like this. But we have a God who is alive. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Eternal. In eternity past, eternity future. A promise keeper. A lover. All of these things. And I think that that brings that out. But here's the problem. It's not three persons dancing in the Godhead. Like three persons dance on earth. You see, they share a common humanity. But they are not one in the sense that God is one. And so God is not a community of three having an eternal dance. God is one in a far more profound sense than three persons dancing together are one. We set, we have to set the threeness of God within the context of the coherence of God that the Father is in the Son that the Father is in the Spirit that the Son is in the Father and the Spirit that the Spirit is in the Father and in the Son we have to set the threeness of God within the context of the simplicity of God which doesn't mean that He's easy to understand not simple in that sense but simple as opposed to being composed of parts. That you don't, you don't say, well, there's a father, there's a son. If only we had a spirit, we would have a trinity. That's not how the father, son, and spirit are. The simplicity of God means there's nothing that God is composed of. Take a little bit of omnipotence, put it in. Take a little bit of omniscience and put it in. Take some holiness and put it in. Mix it together, stir it around, and now you have God. The simplicity of God means there's nothing behind God which He draws from in order to become Himself. There are no parts that have been mixed together or added in order to make God. God simply is who He is. God simply is God. And God is one. And yet in another sense, God is three. Here we are butting up against the limits of language again. But Jesus teaches us the unity between He and the Father. I and the Father are one. At the same time, He teaches us the distinctness between Him and the Father. He's been sent by the Father. Consecrated by the Father, which means He's distinct in some sense from the Father. He teaches us the coherence of His Father and Him. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. 
What Jesus is doing here is saying the sense in which I and the Father are one is that I am God. I am the Son of God. Eternally existent. In whom the Father and the Spirit inhere. And I inhere in them. Which distinguishes Jesus from us. Because we could say by the Spirit indwelling us that God is in us. But can you say that you're in God? What Jesus is doing here is he's, he's giving us a Trinitarian explanation of his statement, I and the Father are one. There is distinctness from the Father. But nevertheless, the Son is the eternal God. We have here a portrait of the eternal Son of God who was in the beginning with God and was God, who is in the Father and in whom is the Father, who has been consecrated and sent into the world. In the context of John's Gospel, by this point and in view of this passage, we have all of that. Taught to us clearly from the Scripture. That's what Jesus is doing by way of explanation. Now let's look at the evidence that he gives. We would expect someone who is one with the Father, in whom is the Father, and who is in the Father, who has been consecrated and sent, we would expect such a one to manifest the supernatural power of God. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. What does he say in this passage? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. C.S. Lewis has that famous quote that Jesus was either a liar and an evil man and therefore should not even be esteemed as a great religious teacher because of the claims that he made. If he just full on knew he was lying, we shouldn't respect him and revere him. If he knew he was just a mere man and yet tried to pass himself off as God, we should consider him a liar and reject him. But he said, if Jesus really thought he was God, and wasn't, then he's a lunatic on level with a poached egg, C.S. Lewis said. Wouldn't that be the case? If someone says, I've been consecrated and sent into the world, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and I and the Father are one, and yet does not manifest the supernatural power of God. Wouldn't you consider him on the level of a poached egg? I would. And even Jesus would allow for us to do that. He says here, if I don't do the works of my Father, okay, fair enough. It's reasonable to doubt what I'm saying. But if you do not believe me, if you don't believe my words, then believe my works. He says in verse 38. Again, I've shown you that it's at least possible Don't my works make it plausible? More than that, don't my works give such strong attestation to my works that in conjunction with my words, you may verify that I have been sent from heaven, that I have been 
consecrated by and sent by the Father. Is it more rational to doubt me than to believe me in view of the works that I do and the claims that I make? Are you serious? You're going to stone me for the claims that I've made as being one consecrated by the Father, sent by the Father, who is in the Father, and in whom is the Father. You're going to stone me for claiming that when up to this point in John we've seen all kinds of miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking all out of them. Wouldn't it be much more rational to stop and give thought to the fact that you might be wrong? If you don't believe me, that is my words, believe the works. This is who I am. This is the sense in which I and the Father are one. And my works are in harmony with my words, bringing a rational case for you to admit that you're wrong instead of picking up stones to stone me. This is Jesus' two-stage argumentation with these guys in this passage. And what is their response? Verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him. Again, they sought to arrest him. Here is Jesus unfolding his deity before them. Unfolding the mysteries of the Godhead to them. You've been waiting for a Messiah. The scripture said the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We read in the Old Testament that the Messiah's name shall be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. The scriptures should have persuaded you to think in these categories. But here you are, not even willing to listen, not even willing to consider, writing me off a priori when I say, I and the Father are one. Consider from Psalm 82 that it's at least plausible that I might make such a claim. Pardon me, that it's at least possible that I might make such a claim. Let me explain to you what I meant. I am the Son of God. Sent into the world by the Father, consecrated by the Father for the work of Messiahship. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Don't you think it's more reasonable, Jewish men who have the Scriptures, who ought to know the Scriptures, don't you think it's more reasonable to believe me? Because of the words I speak, and the actions that I do, don't you think that it's more reasonable to believe me than to pick up stones to stone me? And again, they sought to arrest him. As Matthew Henry said last week, well, he didn't say it last week, I quoted him last week. As I quoted Matthew Henry as saying last week, these people in the section before that which we've considered today, Matthew Henry said, these people pretend only today. In other words, they come to Jesus like it's not yet rational for us to believe in you. We are reasonable people. 
who are willing to consider the evidence. If you will just tell us plainly, the problem with our unbelief is you. We doubt only because there's not enough rational evidence. But Matthew Henry says they pretend only to doubt. The reality is there is a disbelief, an unbelief, hardened in their hearts, which will not accept the claims of Christ. There is an a priori unwillingness to believe. And we see that manifest in this section, where they pick up stones to stone it. Jesus answers persuasively, convincingly, thoughtfully their objections. And again, we see they sought to arrest him. God be praised that as we read in the beginning of our service today, that there are those who have been chosen by the Father, predestined, that in due time that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of His glory in the face of His Son. Else none would believe. We would all be in the same category as these guys, rejecting the Savior. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But listen, had it not been for the grace of God, He would have come also to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles would have received Him not. He would have came unto this world, and this world would have received Him not. It's the grace of God that some believe. And we see at the end of this passage, 40 to 42, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. We see God's grace in opening the hearts and the minds of the unbelievers to believe on this Jesus. And God is still doing that today. As we proclaim the identity of Jesus Christ, as He who was in the beginning with God and was God, as He who is one with the Father, and yet is distinct from the Father. I and the Father are one, not I and the Father am one. He's been sent by the Father, consecrated by the Father, implying, again, that there is a distinction between Him and the Father. What is He then, therefore? The Son. The Son of God. Co-eternal. What is He then, different from the Father, as I'm different from any of you? We share a common humanity, but beyond that, we are just different? No. Co-inherence. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. As we proclaim, this is who Jesus is. And it had to be this way, for none of Adam's descendants could save us. For when Adam sinned, all of humanity was plunged into guilt and corruption. All any of us could ever do would be to be crucified for our own sin. 
and damned in hell thereafter for our own sake. Though we had the best of intentions, we could not die for another, even if it was our own child who we loved dearly. Even if it was our own wife or our own husband or our own mother. Though our intentions were pure, though our intentions were sincere, we could never propitiate the wrath of God towards another. We could only die for our own sins. There was no mere son of Adam who could be designated as a new Adam to act in the room instead of people whom he represented. For all that second son of Adam would do would be what his first father did. And in fact, more so because he wouldn't even be an innocency to begin with. What we needed was one who came from the outside. We needed one who could offer up not merely enough righteousness for one life and die as a substitute for one man and therefore Anselm of Canterbury hundreds of years ago long before the Reformation said we needed one who was then infinite and that could only be God and that's exactly what we read has happened in the scripture this one Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. And as an infinite person lived, died, arose with the sufficiency for many in the room instead of the many. Jesus came into this world to save sinners. The rational conclusion is to believe this. That the eternal Son of God who was in the beginning with God and was God, who is in the Father and in whom is the Father, has been consecrated and sent into the world. And all this in order to save sinners. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. Let us not then, like these guys, seek to arrest Jesus, so to speak, in our hearts. Or pick up stones in our hearts to stone him, so to speak. But let us be like those across the Jordan who believed in him. Who trusted in him. Let us trust our souls to this one. Who has been consecrated by God the Father. Sent into the world with the task of saving us. Let us trust him. He is a trustworthy Savior. And let us rejoice in him and in his coming.